Welcome uh, to this first lesson in our new Sunday School study. The title is 12 Marks of a Healthy Church. Someone mentioned to me that the schedule page on the website was a little bit confusing because the title of uh, the class is 12 Marks of a Healthy Church. It says, it says in the heading that we'll progress through this study in 13 lessons using the book by Mark Dever, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. So we have 12, 13, and 9, but it's all true. Um, I'm going to present 12 marks of a healthy church in 13 lessons using the text, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church by Mark Dever. Okay, <laughs> so uh, that's what's going on. Um, it should be a really wonderful study for us. Let me open in a word of prayer and then we'll begin uh, through this first lesson. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for the Lord's day. How good it is to have this day, which is distinct from all the rest, where we might uh, fix our attention on you in a pronounced way. Uh, it's a wonderful thing to draw together as the people of God to worship, to hear your word, to reflect upon it, to even be blessed by uh, having rest for our bodies and especially for our souls. I pray that you would bless the church today as, as she gathers together here in Sunday school and morning and afternoon worship. May you be exalted in all of these things and would you feed us, we pray. I ask that you would bless this study on the church, that you would continue to deepen our understanding of what the church is and what the church is called to do, uh, so that we might be faithful as your people in this world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I shared with you before that uh, this book was obviously in my hands um, prior to us planting Emmaus. So nearly 12 years ago, uh, the first three sermons that were preached at Emmaus uh, each consisted of three points, and those three points were, um, th those nine points in total were the nine marks of the healthy church that we're going to consider today. So we have never gone through this book together, but in a very brief way, these principles were presented to the original members of Emmaus way back when. So obviously this book was in my hands um, prior to us planting Emmaus, obviously it was impactful. So to pick it up and to read it again, to review it, was really kind of a neat experience for me. Um, I was reminded of some of these principles that I thought were important you know, way back when. I think we're going to find, as we go through these, that some of them are going to seem very basic to us, um, obvious to us. Um, and, and that's okay. It's good for us to review some of these principles that... Um, that, that might be obvious to, to most of us at least, maybe not to all though. Um, let me read the marks that, uh, that Mark Dever presents in this book. Um, nine marks of a healthy church. Expositional preaching. I think most of us will say, well, yes, okay, of course. Biblical theology. Uh, the gospel. A biblical understanding of conversion. A biblical understanding of evangelism. A biblical understanding of church membership. Biblical church discipline, a concern for discipleship and growth, and lastly, biblical church leadership. Uh, actually, all of these things, uh, you, you'll be familiar with these ideas. I think it'll be fun for us to look back on our past 12 years and to see how we have grown and have, have been strengthened in some ways. I think we will be challenged by some of these marks. I personally believe we can still grow in our approach to evangelism, for example, I also think we need to continue to grow in our understanding of biblical church discipline. Um, I think we have actually grown a lot over the years and we have done well in this regard, but I think we could still gain some more clarity. So when we come to Mark 7, I think, uh, Mark number 7, I think it will be helpful for us to consider biblical church discipline anew and afresh. Uh, so some things will be review, some things will be challenging, and then, as I said, I will present 12 Marks. Uh, to you, and so you'll see in the schedule on the website that we'll be going, you know, Mark one, Mark two, and then it'll say in the schedule bonus Mark number one, and then later on bonus Mark number two, and then later on bonus Mark number three. And these are marks that um, you know we have, I think, picked up along the way as we have, in some ways, grown uh, beyond this as a congregation. Uh, Mark Dever is Southern Baptist. Mark Dever is the founder of this organization. Nine Marks uh, Ministries, um, and there's a lot of good things, you know, coming out of that organization. Um, certainly, the Lord has used um, him and, and this book and uh, this ministry, Nine Marks, uh, for good. 
Um, but in some ways, as Reformed Baptists, we have gone beyond this. And so the marks that I will present to you as bonus marks will be, let me see if I can remember uh, them, um, Catech- or doctrin- doctrinal or catechetical preaching, I think, needs to be emphasized, uh, even in addition to expositional preaching. Um, a biblical understanding of church associations. We have really grown to love our association, and we've come to value the importance of not only church membership in the local church, but local churches being a part of something uh, greater than themselves, something bigger. We need to be connected to the church universal, so we'll look at associationalism, and then also the importance of having a robust confession of faith, so a biblical understanding of confessionalism. Those will be the three bonus marks that I present to you. Uh, This morning what we will do is go through the introduction. That's why there are 13 lessons. We'll consider 12 marks in 13 lessons because we're devoting a lesson here to the introduction uh, to this book. I'll overview very quickly what Dever presents, and then hopefully we'll have a little bit of time for discussion. He mentions a 1993 survey. Wow, that's a long time ago, right? Um, The 90s were were good times. Uh, This book was written in 2004, by the way, Uh, 2004. So he's referencing a 1993 survey uh, which showed that seminary students were dissatisfied with the current status of the church. I wonder if that isn't true of seminary students in every age. You know, dissatisfied with the current status of the church. Uh, It probably is true. And in fact, there is a sense in which the church is always in need of reform and greater health. So it's right for us to always have this sense of dissatisfaction. We need to grow, we need to be more holy, etc. Uh, but Dever makes the point, after mentioning some reasons for this dissatisfaction, that dissatisfaction is not enough. <laughs> you know, it, It's one thing to say, the church needs to be strengthened. Well, talk is cheap, I guess, is the idea here. We need to take action. And here in the introduction, Dever says, we need positively to recover what the church is to be. Uh, what the church is to be. What is the church in her nature and essence? What is to distinguish and mark the church? Now, I want to just connect something in your minds. I took eight weeks preaching on the doctrine of the church, and those sermons were really about the essence or nature of the church, weren't they? We were considering the church in the terms of temple, and so really we got to talk about what the foundation of the church is, Uh, what the stones of the church are. They they are those regenerated by the Holy Spirit who have faith in Christ. So all of those sermons, I won't review them with you now, uh, really had to do with the nature or essence of the church. And so I agree with Dever here. We need to have a biblical understanding of that. But also we need to understand what is to distinguish and mark the church. What are her uh, characteristics? Section 2 in in the introduction here um, really looks at church history and uh, focuses in upon uh, the thing that the Protestant reformers had to wrestle with, uh, which was the question, how do we know what a, how do we identify a true church? He says, before the 16th century, so before the time of the Protestant Reformation, the church was more assumed than discussed. It was thought of as a means of grace, a reality that existed as the as the presupposition of the rest of theology. So he's here uh, referring to what developed within the Roman uh, tradition in the Middle Ages. Uh, The church was assumed. It wasn't discussed so much. It was a means of grace, but not really in the way that we talk about the means of grace. Uh, And really it was the church that determined theology um, and doctrine. The Word of God was somewhat neglected. Uh, There's a whole history there that uh, is, is being referenced that we don't have the time to go into. Uh, but he says, practically the Church of Rome linked its claim to being the true visible church to the succession of Peter as Bishop of Rome. So prior to the Protestant Reformation, if the question was asked, how do we know if a church is true or not? The, the answer would have been more or less this. Is this local parish a part of the Roman church or not? You know, d- does this local parish sit underneath the authority of the Pope and of the bishops and cardinals? Um, and so this was very much, had very much to do with the su- succession of popes, according to Rome, uh, descending from Peter. That is their, that is their view. 
you can see why uh, the reformers would have to wrestle with this question then. Uh, because at the time of the Protestant Reformation, there was a break. Uh, these churches were being established outside of the organizational structure of Rome. And of course, Rome's claim was that these churches were not true churches, therefore, because they didn't fit within the structure. But the reformers had to answer back, well, why are these churches to be considered true? The Reformation made the gospel, not ecclesiastical organization, the test of the true church. So, how do we know if a church is true or not? Well, in very brief terms, does the church proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ faithfully? Calvin questioned Rome's claims. This is a reference and a quote from John Calvin, uh, one of the more famous of the Protestant reformers. Especially in the organization of the church, nothing is more absurd than to lodge the succession of persons alone to the exclusion of teaching. It's a, a very pointed quote here from Calvin. He's saying, you know, with, with the church, with the organization of the church, it is so very absurd to just say that a true church is found with the, you know, identified by the succession of individuals as opposed to the teaching. It, it has to be what is taught uh, that distinguishes true churches from false churches. In fact, it is the Word of God that creates the church. It is not the church that creates the Word of God. See, it is the Word of God that creates the church. It is the Word of God that, that sustains and sanctifies the church. Therefore, we should not be looking to the succession of persons, but to the teaching. What, what is being taught? A true church is going to teach the truth of God's Word, the truth of the Gospel. Calvin is, is exactly right. Since that time, that is since the time of the Protestant Reformation, the marks of the church have been a necessary focus of discussion. So what are the distinguishing marks of a true church? Notice we are here talking about true church, not healthy. Um, and we will come to that in just a moment. What are the marks of a true church? Historically, two marks have been identified these two marks can also be presented as three, as we will see in just a moment. Two marks of a true church have historically been identified by those in the Protestant tradition. Melanchthon, in the Augsburg Confession, written in 1530, says this, "...the church is the congregation of the saints in which the gospel is rightly taught and the sacraments are rightly administered." Uh, there is a lot in that little statement here. Um, the church is the congregation of the saints. This isn't necessarily a mark of the true church, but rather in that word saints, we see uh, that the church is to consist of those who have faith in Christ. It is to consist of those who have been made holy by the blood of Christ through faith in Him. That word saints is very important, especially if you think about the Roman tradition. Uh, who are saints in the Roman tradition? Not necessarily every believer, but only those who were super Christians, you know, who have been deemed to be or declared to be saints by the church. But according to the Bible, it is all who have faith in Christ who are saints. They are the holy ones made holy by the shed blood of Christ. So it's a very important statement there. The church is the congregation of the saints, those who have professed faith in Christ, who have been made alive by the Holy Spirit and washed in the blood of Christ in which the gospel is rightly taught and the sacraments are rightly administered. So there are the two marks of a true church. Is the gospel rightly taught in this place? And are the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, two sacraments, not seven, are they rightly administered in this place? Uh, Cranmer in the 42 Articles of the Church of England written in 1553, so just a few years later, says, The visible church of Christ is a congregation of faithful men, I think included in that, is women too. Um, it's a way of speaking. A congregation of faithful people, uh, people who are full of faith, that have faith, and who are walking with Christ, in which the pure word of God is preached and the sacraments are duly administered according to Christ's ordinance and all those things that of necessity are requ requisite to the same. So, again, two marks. The Word of God is preached, the sacraments are duly or rightly administered. Calvin in his Institutes of the Christian Religion says, Wherever we see the Word of God purely preached and heard, and the sacraments administered according to Christ's institution, there 
It is not to be doubted a church of God exists. Calvin has a way of putting things. I think he, he, um, he, he's very eloquent and, and clear and beautiful, beautiful in his writings. Um, but again, he identifies these two marks, the Word of God purely preached and heard, and the sacraments administered according to Christ's institution. Now, some will speak of a third mark of a, of a true church, and I think this is actually helpful um, to speak of a third mark, and that is the mark of discipline. And uh, those who say that there are two marks of, the, of a true church will often admit that this third mark is implied in the second. So the mark of discipline is implied in the second. How so? Well, if a true church is going to rightly administer the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, uh, the right administration of the Lord's Supper is going to include church discipline so that the supper the lord's table is properly fenced so that it is only those who've been baptized who are invited to it and those who are living a life of sin are going to be identified and even god forbid but barred from the lord's table so the the third mark of discipline is i think implied in the second mark uh, that we have already considered but the belgic confession Uh, decided to explicitly mention this third mark. And again, I think it is helpful. The mark by which the the true church is known are these. The marks by which the true church is known are these. If the pure doctrine of the gospel is preached therein, if she maintains the pure administration of the sacraments as instituted by Christ, if church discipline is exercised in punishing of sin, in short, if all things are managed according to the pure word of God, all things contrary thereunto rejected, and Jesus Christ acknowledged as the only head of the church. That is Article 29 of the Belgic Confession. Uh, you see the first two marks mentioned, and then this third is explicitly stated, if church discipline is exercised in punishing sin. Okay, Edmund Clowney, writing in uh, more modern times, has summarized these marks as the true preaching of the word, proper observance of the sacraments, and faithful exercise of church discipline. And then Devers says on page 24 of the book that I was using to create this outline, um, we can see in these two marks, gospel proclamation and observance of the sacraments, both the creation and preservation of the church, the fountain of God's truth, and the lovely vessel to contain and display it. I think that is beautifully stated. Uh, We can see in these two marks, I'll repeat it, both the creation and preservation of the church. Okay, So the creation of the church. How is the church created except through the preaching of the gospel? How is the church preserved? Also through the preaching of the word of God and the administration of the sacraments. Um, I, I suppose I should go back and say how is the church created through the preaching of the gospel and It's through baptism that members are received into the church. So those two things, preaching of the gospel and baptism, really have to do with the creation of the church. How is the church maintained? Through the preaching of the Word of God faithfully and the administration of the other sacrament, the Lord's Supper. So the creation and preservation of the church are seen here. It's a beautiful observation that Deborah makes. And um, he goes on to say, The church is generated by the right preaching of the Word. The church is contained and distinguished by the right administration of baptism of the Lord's Supper. I suppose we could look at it either way. Uh, that's Deborah on page 24. Okay. So you'll notice something. Before Dever jumps into the nine marks of a healthy church, he first addresses the two, or if you prefer, three marks of a true church. So this book is not really addressing the question, how do we identify a true church? That's a very, very important question to ask. Um, It's a very, very important question in our day and age. Don't you agree, brothers and sisters? And in fact, I think if we were to apply these two or three marks uh, in our day and age, we might be really concerned with what we see going on around us. If we begin to ask the question, is the Word of God faithfully preached in this congregation? Are the sacraments faithfully and rightly administered in this congregation? I, I, I wonder if a lot of these organizations that go by the name church wouldn't have a hard time measuring up to these two or three basic marks of a a true church. But this book here is really asking a different question. What are the marks of a healthy church? He says in this introduction that a church can be true but unhealthy. A church can be true but unhealthy. 
he's wanting to spur us along as congregations to not only be true churches, but to be healthy churches, uh, churches that are thriving. So Dever accepts the traditional Protestant understanding of the marks of a true church. In this book, he attempts to speak to some marks that set off healthy churches from true but more sickly ones. No church is perfect. That is certainly true. Some are healthy. Dever's concern is that many are not in our day and age. Many are not. After stating many possible reasons for the lack of health within the the modern church, Dever says... This book is a plan for recovering biblical preaching and church leadership in a time when too many congregations are languishing in a merely notional or theoretical and nominal, I I think he means self-styled, form of Christianity. With all the resulting pragmatism and pettiness, the purpose of too many evangelical churches has fallen from one of glorifying God simply to growing larger, assuming that that goal, however achieved, must glorify God. I, I think he has put his finger on, on a real problem here. And when I re- reread uh, this statement on page 25, I thought this is why this book was so helpful to me those many years ago. Because for a long time in our previous church, I remember wrestling very much with this uh, frustration, with this concern that there seems to be such a drive for churches to grow larger and larger, such a fixation upon numbers, um, that it it was bringing really unhealthy things into the church. Uh, Let's grow larger, let's grow larger, almost at any cost, you see. And, you know, are we a healthy church? Well, what question do we need to ask first and foremost? How big are you? (laughs) That seems to be the litmus test for many churches today. Is your church healthy? Is it thriving? Uh, In other words, how many people attend on a Sunday? And if you say 30, then your church is weak. Your church is not healthy. If you say 90, well, you're getting there. You know, if you say 500, that's pretty good. Sadly, in our day and age, that's okay. <laughs> if you say 3,000, then wow, the Lord has blessed you. Uh, and you are being used by God to bring glory to His name. You have, you have arrived. Your church has a thousand people or two thousand or three. I mean, it really is the spirit of our age. I think you would agree with me. And um, even before we planted Emmaus, I was very concerned with that whole mindset, that whole methodology, uh, numerical growth almost at any cost. I say almost because it's not at any cost, but but almost at, at any cost. Um, you know, just to speak bluntly, uh, concerning this those who were a part of our previous church, who were a part of the founding of Emmaus, you will remember the obsession with Rick Warren's methodology, won't you, at our previous congregation? Uh, 40 days of purpose, purpose-driven life. We were all in with that sort of stuff. I hated it from the beginning. And I grew to hate it all the more as we remained in that place. It, it was just pragmatism through and through. And so it's no wonder that when I picked up this book, whenever it was, I can't even remember when I first read it, I thought, ah, this, this, is, what, this is what we need. You know, something, it's not pragmatic, it's not so focused on numerical growth and programs and all the rest, um, but, but rather it, it, this book is saying we need to conform ourselves to what the Scriptures teach. We need to be faithful to do what God has called us to do. We need to know what the church is in its essence. We need to identify what a true church is. And beyond that, if we want to be healthy, we have to conform ourselves to the Word of God. So I remember reading this at some point going, ah, this is, this is what we should be aiming for. I also remember reading another book a long time ago. Um, it was written to pastors. And I forget the author's name. I need to go back and pull it off my shelf. Um, Liberating Ministry from the Success Syndrome was the title of it. I remember giving it to our former pastor. We should read this together. Liberating Ministry from the Success Syndrome, I think, is the title of it. Maybe Philip Hughes or or some, I can't remember the author's name. I shouldn't even have said that. Um, And I hope I'm even getting the title right. But the idea of the book was, it, it, it was an appeal to pastors to stop being obsessed with big numbers and big buildings, and big budgets, but just to be faithful. Be faithful. 
Be faithful to do what God has called you to do. I remember reading that, thinking this is great. There was another book written by um, John Piper, Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. Another appeal to pastors, fellow pastors. Brothers, we are not professionals. We're not CEOs. We're not called to build corporations. We are called to be faithful men of God, ministers of the Word of God, pastors, you see. It's good for pastors to be quote-unquote professional, you know, to be hardworking and organized and faithful and all the rest. But you, you get the point just from the title. We're, we're, not, we're not called to be CEOs, you know, the, the chief, chief executives of, of large corporations. We're called to be faithful men of God. So all of these things were kind of stirring within me. I didn't have the clarity then that I do now. Uh, concerning the importance of all this. So it is fun to go back and to pick up one of these books off the shelf and to go, okay, I remember, I remember what was going on in my mind and heart and kind of what must have uh, led to the planting of Emmaus in part. Uh, you know, all of these things uh, were being wrestled with back then. So no church is perfect. Some are healthy. Dever's concern is that many are not. He... Uh, does mention some possible reasons for the lack of health. Uh, point two under 3B, point two. Uh, this pragmatic approach is self-defeating. What is the pragmatic approach? Pragmatism is this. It, it's the obsession with practical things. Uh, it, it's the obsession with things that are going to produce numerical growth, really. Um, so how can we, how can we cater to the culture? How can we appeal to the world so as to produce the desired end, which is numerical growth? You know, how can we make church most comfortable for the non-believer, the seeker, as it were? The se- so we have the seeker-friendly church movement, and we're even beyond that in, in our day and age. It's an obsession with the practical, the pragmatic. How can we make the church grow? And Dever says rightly, that the pragmatic approach is self-defeating. If the aim of the church is to grow, numerically, the way to do it is to make people feel good. And when people discover that there are other ways to feel good, they leave the church they no longer need. The relevant church is sowing seeds of its own irrelevance and losing its identity to boot. Spot on. That's Dever quoting Bratton. Brayton, I on page 25 of, of the book here. It's so true. If the church is going to gut itself of its true and biblical identity in order to cater to the culture, the very thing that it has to give to the world, namely the gospel of Jesus Christ and the hope of life everlasting, is lost. And yes, you might have a huge influx of people as you you, you know, put on a show every Sunday with lights and and, and, and wonderful music, concert style, etc., etc., programs for everybody. You might have a huge influx of people for a while, but you know, you're not really meeting people's deepest needs because you're withholding from them the, the, the truth of the gospel, the truth of the Word of God, ultimately, in order to bring them in. They're going to grow disinterested very quickly. And that is why there is this revolving door. People are coming in the front door and walking right out the back constantly in these large churches. Um, there's so many other reasons why this is a bad approach. Uh, but I think this is a, a very good observation. The pragmatic approach is self-defeating. I've often wondered why people even bother to go to churches like this. Uh, do something else with your time on Sunday. Go take a walk around the block. and uh, You know what I'm saying? If you just want to feel good, there's no substance here. So why even bother uh, with this sort of thing? But you can hear my... Um, cynicism uh, emerging right now concerning this whole way of doing church. But it is what it is. Uh, Popular models of the church, the liberal mode. Uh, The liberals will rethink the gospel in contemporary terms, you know. Uh, Some of these truths are old and outdated and unfashionable. Some of these beliefs in, you know, miraculous things like, I don't know, um, the ability to heal or to raise the dead or that Jesus himself was virgin born and raised from the dead. Those are very unscientific um, claims and we have advanced beyond this. Therefore, we'll take Jesus but we're going to gut him of all of these things that do not appeal to our modern palate. Um, We will have a Jesus who was a great teacher and a moral man but not uh, 
Jesus, who is the eternal Son of God, come in the flesh, who lived, died, and rose again for us. That's all superstitious stuff. We are, we are we're better than that now. In brief, that's really the, the liberal approach, the liberal model. We need to rethink the gospel in contemporary or modern terms. I want to take you through a book uh, one of these days, uh, brothers and sisters, by J. Gresham Machen called um, Christianity and Liberalism. It compares and contrasts Orthodox Christianity with liberalism and shows that the two are different religions altogether. It's a wonderful treatment on this subject, written quite a while ago. It, it seems very appropriate for our day. But let's look at the doctrine of God and compare the, the liberals' doctrine of God with orthodox, orthodoxy. They're different religions. Their doctrine of Christ, their doctrine of man, their doctrine of sin and salvation. They're two different religions altogether. But the liberal model, what are they after? They're, they're trying to appeal to the modern culture to the modern man, for the sake of growth. They might even say for the sake of evangelism. It sounds better that way, right? For the sake of evangelism. But what do they do? They gut the Christian faith of its substance. They replace it with something else. They might thrive for a time. But if you know anything about church history, you'll know that these liberal churches that were thriving 50 years ago are dead now. And that's how it goes with this. They're dead now. And the same will be true for all of these seeker-sensitive type churches. They are thriving now. They will be dead 50 years from now because they have been gutted of their Christian substance. The seeker-sensitive model is another one. Again, the claim is we want to be evangelistic. We want to make the gospel relevant. Is there a place for relevance? Yes, I think there is, but within very strict boundaries. We need not be intentionally uh, irrelevant. Is that the right word? Yeah, you understand? We, 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 we need not be uh, deliberately off-putting to the world in an extreme way. But the truth is this, the gospel is always going to be offensive to the non-believer. Uh, it, it, there, there must be a work of God done upon the heart. Amen? And if there is a work of God being done upon the heart, then what will the person who is being either drawn to the faith or who is in the faith, what will they desire? Not this uh, pragmatic, uh, superficial stuff. They're going to desire truth. And so we reject this seeker-sensitive model on, 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 a num- on, on numerous grounds. Uh, again, they will say, we want to be evangelistic, we want to grow the church, we want to make the gospel relevant, but in, in so doing, they often... Uh, gut the Christian faith of its substance, distort the gospel, neglect the sacraments, uh, and therefore they become uh, self-defeating in their approach. Uh, traditional evangelical churches, um, Billy Graham was a very popular figure, as, as many of you know, uh, but he was really the father of the modern seeker-sensitive uh, movement, I think. Uh, he was the one who promoted the seeker-sensitive approach for an older generation, really. We need to see him as being a fountainhead of this kind of approach to to ministry. And that can be very hard for people to hear, you know, a critique of Billy Graham, because many heard his preaching, and I do not doubt that many heard his preaching and came to have sincere faith uh, through his preaching. I'm not denying that. In fact, I'll readily admit that the Lord can use all of these churches and all of these approaches to bring people to true faith. Uh, By the grace of God, He brings good out of them. I'm not denying it. Uh, But I think um, we should be very concerned of this whole crusade model of ministry where the local church is in many ways devalued. It becomes kind of a tangential thing. And you've seen this as well where a lot of these seeker-sensitive type churches make every Sunday service like a crusade. So the gospel is always being preached. There's altar calls all the time. uh, But very little teaching is going on within the local church because, again, it's all about evangelism, all about evangelism. Now, I said to you at the beginning of this, this lesson, I think we need to grow in our evangelism. I do. But there's a way to do that where the church itself is not compromised. Uh, where, where the truth of the gospel is not compromised, where, where the church is still robust itself, and nevertheless we are outreaching to the world uh, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Looks can be deceiving, Dever says. Um, numerical growth doesn't equal true growth or health. We need to be aware of that. Um, now, what Dever calls for is a different model. He says that 
faithfulness ought to be our aim, not numerical growth. And he's completely right. Should we desire to see the church grow? Yes, we should. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations is the commission that Christ gave to his apostles and through them to us as a church. We should desire to see the church grow. But we must be faithful. We, we, we must be convinced of this, that if the church is to grow really and truly, it will grow in the way that God has determined to make it grow. That is through the ordinary means of grace that He has prescribed for us. It will be through the faithful preaching of the Word of God as the Spirit works. It will be through the faithful administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper. It will be through um, a, a church and that, that is rightly disciplined, you see. Um, the church might appear to grow numerically if we take the pragmatic approach, but it will not be true growth or healthy growth that will lead to all sorts of problems in the long run. So, we have nine marks presented to us in this book. I've already gone over them with you. Dever does divide them into two categories. Um, the first five marks, he says, have to do with preaching the message of the gospel, expository preaching, biblical theology, the gospel, a biblical understanding of conversion, and a biblical understanding of evangelism. And then uh, the next four marks have to do with leading the disciples, Mark 6 through 9 a biblical understanding of church membership, discipline, discipleship and growth, and biblical church leadership. And then again, I list three bonus marks here, Reformed Baptist marks, we could call them perhaps, catechetical teaching, confessional subscription, a biblical understanding of interchurch association. Okay, uh, so you know where we're going, you get, kind of get the gist of it. Are there any questions at this time? We did leave a little bit of time for a question and answer or discussion. Scott. Yeah, if you know your history, there's obviously a, a, a problem here with these three marks of a true church, uh, the, the true preaching of the gospel, the right administration of the sacraments, and then discipline. Uh, the, many of these men and these confessions that were cited for the, these uh, three marks of a true church, uh, they were paedo-baptists in their approach, so they would apply baptism to the infants of believers uh, and so we are obviously going to look at that as Baptists and go, well, you yourselves were not even uh, rightly administering the, the sacrament of, of baptism. And it is also true that some of these early Reformers especially would look at Baptists, though they did not exist in number at all um, in the days of Calvin, for example, as being outside the bounds of um, perhaps a true church because they would view our doctrine of baptism as being deficient. So all of that needs to be recognized. You know, there's some difficulty here. What do you call untrue? What do you call unhealthy or deficient? You know, that's really the issue. I don't know that they would have been so gracious with us as we are with them. Uh, for the Pado baptists who are Reformed and Orthodox in their confession today, we would look at their doctrine of baptism and say it is deficient, it is defunct, it is, it is not proper. 
Um, nevertheless, those who hold to the view of infant baptism, they still will apply baptism to those who make a profession of faith later in life who were not baptized as infants. Uh, so if we just take the issue of infant baptism out of the equation, we have the same view. We certainly have the same view of the Lord's Supper. Uh, our view, um, just to state it directly, would be that our doctrine of the sacraments is more pure than theirs, biblically speaking. Uh, we, we do administer the sacraments more faithfully than they do, and that would drive them crazy to hear, for them to hear me say that. Uh, but we do believe that we are more reformed, according to the Scriptures, in our approach to the doctrine of baptism. Um, so, I think, yes, it, it is right for us to say that they are wrong to apply baptism to infants. They're orthodox in everything else. Uh, They are right in their um, approach to the Lord's table, so we may still call them brothers and even true churches, even though we might be accused of being inconsistent here on this point. I think uh, we need to be gracious in this regard. I don't know if that helps uh, answer the question, Scott, but um, yeah, right when I read that, I I thought, hmm, (laughs) there's obviously a tension here that Dever's kind of glossing over, and I don't criticize him for that. It's not the point of the book, but he does gloss right over it. Yep. Yeah, so the question, just for the sake of the recording, there were two words that weren't mentioned, church governance and missions. And yes, um, I think the idea of missions is stated or implied in the section on evangelism. We call it missions, but really what what is missions except evangelism and church planting being done in a cross-cultural context, you know. Um, And I think he does say in the preface to this book that he has received some pushback on the nine marks that he's chosen. The reality is you could choose seven, you could choose nine, you could choose 20. He's chosen nine. And uh, one of the things that he has received some pushback on is the importance of cross-cultural missions, missions or evangelism to the unreached peoples. But I think it's implied in, in the whole section on on evangelism. Uh, church government, governance, it will be touched upon a little bit in, under the chapter on um, biblical church leadership. Uh, there we will talk about elders and deacons and all the rest. Um, none of these chapters are really a deep dive into these subjects. There's so much more to talk about, and, but, but they're, they're presented in, in a generic way. Yeah, Becky. So the question is, how do, where do the finances of the church? Um, well, how they're Yeah, certainly that would have to do with whether or not a church is healthy or not. It's not. I don't know that it's addressed directly here. Maybe the importance of supporting ministers is addressed under the chapter on uh, leadership. But yeah, certainly if a church is um, always operating in the red or if there is some sort of shadiness going on, it's a mark of a very unhealthy church because that church has sinfulness at its, um, at its core. Um, so I don't know that it's touched on here, but yeah, certainly that's an important issue. The reality is that this book, we could go on and on and on and talk about all these different things. Yeah. Any other questions? Tom? I'd be willing to be harder on it, to be honest with you, Tom. Yeah. Um, I, I, I was there, you know, so I do remember, yeah, there was something healthy about it for BFC because for the first time you say we were all on the same page. So, yeah, it was wonderful to be on the same page. And um, we have enjoyed being on the same page, but centered around the scriptures and a confession of faith, you know, and, and, and those sorts of things. So, yeah, a church needs to be on the same page, doctrinally speaking. 
There needs to be synchronization between what goes on on the Lord's Day, you know, in the, in, the, in the morning service and what's going on in Sunday school for children and what's going on in small groups, et cetera, et cetera. All that synchronization is, is important and healthy. Um, but the question is, what is it that binds us together? And if it's a curriculum by Rick Warren, I would say it, it's, it's no good at all. Um, so I was glad to be on the same page for a time. I remember being on staff at that point in time going, yeah, there is something healthy about this. But the thing that bound us together was unhealthy, and it was that entire seeker-sensitive approach to ministry. Um, Rick Warren being a major figure uh, spearheading that. So um, it, it, wasn't the, um, it wasn't the approach that was the problem. It was the substance or lack thereof that, that was the problem. Um, that would be my take on it. And I was, yeah, I was a part of that. I, um, and I remember being kind of nauseated by it at the time, to be honest with you. My wife can testify to that. Mike. Yeah, it's a good observation. The gospel has changed from being what it is to God has given you purpose. Remember the motto of the um, the forty days stuff. Uh, do you remember what the motto was? <clears throat> yeah, but there was like a little a little uh, phrase um, that was there was t- there were T-shirts made. It's not about it's not about you or it's not about me. I would say that is a bold-faced lie. That, that whole system is all about you, all about me. Um, it's a misrepresentation of the facts. I mean, I've come to see that as being one of the most ironic things, you know, uh, to have 40 days of this, 40 days of that, and then the byline. It's not about me. And I'm thinking, no, this is all about you. This is all about me. This is about comfort. This is about my purpose, and the gospel has just been abandoned. The, the truth of the gospel has really been ab- abandoned. And I know that sounds harsh, and yeah, I am speaking in very black and white, like blunt terms right now. Um, n- no, one who, no one who went through that or, or liked 40 Days of Purpose would, would want to say that. But I think what, what has happened in these churches that are overrun by pragmatism, um, it's all about the pragmatics to the neglect of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's all about the pragmatics to the neglect of proper administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper. To the proper, you know, all about pragmatics to the neglect of proper and biblical church government. Um, forget about discipline. Give me a break. No discipline at all in churches like this. No proper fencing of the Lord's table because, after all, that would be offensive to the non-believer and would diminish our numbers. So. Yeah, I, uh, I wasn't really planning on getting riled up about this um, this morning, but um, yeah, it's bringing back lots of memories. I, I, I think um, it's not about me. No, it, it, it's all about you in, in systems like this. Um, and I think we need to square with it, brothers and sisters. What have I said to you over and over again? It, it really is our ecclesiology that distinguishes us more than anything. And uh, I believe that, and that, therefore we're spending a lot of time on the doctrine of the church at almost 12 years after our exist, our planting. Yep. Uh, yeah, I, we, we left the church over that. And I was a worship director then, so it was, it was um, significant for, for us and what we did to the that church. But I wanted to just ask one quick question. You, know, you said, why bother? You know, you're talking about some of these kinds of churches. Um, and, you know, that kind of feel-good approach you know, in my observations, I would say that the white bother is answered by the, the, the uh, spiritual uh, fulfillment that they supposedly receive. So I think, that, I think that there is something legitimate, but I don't think it's, it's, it's truly spiritual. I think, it's, I think it's very much a very, you know, man-centered or, or yeah. Thank you. 
So, so yeah, Scott is bringing up the comment I made about why bother, and, and I, I do know why people bother. It, it is right. They, they walk away from their church experience feeling good in some way. I mean, I know people personally, pretty closely, who if you were to press them, if you were to ask if, if Jesus Christ is the only way, they would say no. They, they would want to be more exclusive. You know, there, there's nothing really exclusive about Him. They would be unorthodox in many of their core doctrines, and yet they faithfully go to church. And I'm thinking, what, what, what does it for them? Well, it's that they come and they have a sense of community. They have a sense of belonging. They're encouraged by the, me- the message that is taught. Every message is very, very encouraging, you know, non-offensive. Uh, and so they do walk away feeling good. And that's why I'm saying it is all about me in, 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 in uh, um, these traditions. And, and I say, why bother? Because I'm going, why even bother with Christianity? And you want to know something? Those churches would evaporate in an instant if persecution came to them. Because the reality is they would no longer have a benefit to going to church. It would only be a risk to them. And they would be able to find their sense of belonging, their sense of community, their encouragement elsewhere in other types of groups. You know, I, I know that my neighbor claims to be a Christian, and I see her going on walks every Sunday morning with a friend and never going to church. So it's a, but I know the church that she has attended historically is one of these felt needs churches. So in other words, at some point in time, she decided that it was more encouraging to her to go on walks on a Sunday morning with her friend and to not attend church than to attend church. Church became too bothersome. It became too risky. Everybody there probably has COVID anyways, right? So she, she doesn't go. And I just, I just make this observation about her. It, this pragmatism is self-defeating. If it is all about you, if it's all about your felt needs, if it's all about you being encouraged, the, the time will come where no longer will the church do it for you but something else will. Walks on a Sunday morning. I like walks. It was a nice morning this morning. It looked nice. But she ought to be in church on the Lord's Day. And if that church was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and administering the sacraments faithfully as the ordinary means of grace, she would have a reason to go. But she doesn't have a reason to go because she's uplifted more by walks with her friend on a Sunday morning. So, yes, we're way over time, and I'm riled up. Um, <laughs> But it's okay that you see me like that from time to time. And may the Lord forgive me if I was too harsh in any of my comments. Um, for the sake of recording, if anybody is offended by what I have said, I don't know who would listen to this beyond this, this uh, group here. Feel free to reach out to me and maybe I can clarify something. Because I do feel like I was a little off the cuff shooting from the hip and maybe uh, imprecise in my comments this morning. But um, I do stand by them. I just might need to clarify them to those who have heard and who have been offended. goes for you too. Please talk to me if I um, was not clear in anything. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we, we long to see your church flourish. We long to see your church filled with people who have true faith in Christ. We long to see health in your church, and we pray that you would bless this congregation with even greater health than what we possess today. We thank you for the past almost 12 years now, for the health, the unity, the love, the faith, the joy, the hope that we have. Uh, We pray that it would increase, O Lord. Where we are weak, make us strong, O God. Where we are strong, we pray that you would make us stronger for our good and the glory of your name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.